Welcome back to The Teacher's Promise. This episode is going to be a little different. It's the first of what I'm going to call the harder stories. We all know education isn't always noble and praiseworthy, but I'm not going to ask anyone to share their extraordinary mistakes. Educators get enough criticism from the rest of society. But I will share mine. You see, I'm a very normal teacher. Sometimes I do it well, sometimes I don't. But I'm confident that reflecting on these harder lessons will help make all of us better educators and possibly better people. It's just that I don't know the best way to share them. So hopefully you will let me know whether these stories are worth your time by either emailing me through the contact bread at the bottom of the Teacher's Promise webpage or Hanson Education Services webpage or through the Teacher's Promise Facebook group. Because if they're not worth your time, let's focus on you. If they're not sufficiently well-written or interesting, let's hear from another awesome teacher. But please give this first story a chance, and then let me know what you think. Especially if you had a student like Forrest you just can't forget, even after 20 years. I know one thing for certain. If you have, you're not alone. It's terribly painful to admit over and over that most of the time, life is learned backwards even though it must always be lived forward. The first time for me surprised me. It snuck up on me and laid me flat before I had a chance to prepare myself. I mean, it's embarrassing to this day. My overconfidence was partially to blame, but the real cause was my ignorance. Even now the word offends me. What does it mean to be ignorant of one's purpose, value, or service to the world? Who has the will to face the truth when that truth doesn't look so pretty? and definitely not noble. The first time I felt the true merit of being a teacher, it broke my heart. My career started in a tiny school nestled in the glorious Mackenzie Valley, a small area of the Kalapuya Mountains in the Cascade Range. We lived in the shadows of giant cedars and soft pines, where low clouds seemed just out of reach. The school sat quietly on the side of a mountain, wreathed in second-generation pine trees with its own little stream trickling like subtle jewelry along the practice fields. Below, the narrow but powerful Mackenzie River, the source of so much revenue since the collapse of the timber industry, flowed as it had for centuries. At this time, it invited tourists and fisher folk, rafters and professional kayakers, peace and some prosperity. Every teacher should be so lucky to start this journey in a small mountain school surrounded on all sides by pure nature, but not only because of the beauty, One learns a great deal about compassion while teaching in a small rural school where half the kids, poor and lean, appear to grow right from the ground, the same ground from which their grandparents scratched a life, while the other half seem to have softly dropped from the clouds, well-mannered and polished, kind, but with one eye elsewhere. In a small school, when they are young, most kids learn to accept each other because there are so few options and so little room for social mistakes. This forced habit of kindness is worth a lifetime of fortune. During my first year, I coached junior high football and basketball and assisted the high school track coach, mainly because we really needed the money. Finances are always tight for a family living on a first-year teacher's salary, as you may already know. But life was good. One of my students was a short, fun-loving athletic speedster, our starting running back on the football team and point guard on the basketball team. Forrest did whatever we asked him to do including his homework, which was required in order to play. 
He was definitely a kid who grew from the ground, as his mother had. His grandpa also grew from the mountain, probably on the same land his own grandparents had cut a life from. One could easily see the similarity. Lean and hungry, short and strong, alert, ready. His grandfather and his mother came to all the school conferences, all his games, all the events. They reveled in his successes and consoled him in our failures. Not so much living through him, as many unsatisfied parents do, but enjoying his opportunities. You could tell because they always hit you at some point in their visit with that forest smile. All three of them had it and shared it generously. Who knows if it was learned behavior or part of their genetic gift, a present from centuries on the mountain. Forrest's smile could make my day. Perhaps he got some of it from his father. I don't know. Forrest's father didn't live on the mountain. One day after practice, Forrest thanked me for consistently making him do his homework, even though, as he put it, won't matter. His family had already convinced him in the seventh grade that he wouldn't go to college, but he still wanted to do well. I remember telling him that he might change his mind, that he might choose to attend a technical school or then maybe transfer to a four-year school. You never know. He just smiled that spectacular forest smile and said, thanks, Mr. Hansen, and ran off to join his friends. I often wonder about that smile, that day, when I am trying to make sense of my early mistakes. Did he try to do well, even though it won't matter, not because of academic possibilities or college and career readiness, but in order to be a good citizen, to develop a good work ethic, because it was what we asked him to do? Or was it simple obedience? Did Forrest try his best just because I told him it was part of the game, and he always played his hardest, all the way to the buzzer. I went home that day, thinking about what he'd said, and then kissed my wife and baby boy, put on my waders, and walked the 200 yards to Horse Creek to try to forget about Forrest. You see, I started fly fishing while studying to become a teacher in Missoula, Montana, and got hooked. A friend had given me his old rod and reel, a few flies to get started, and a basic casting lesson. He took me to the Clark Fork River, the same one Norman fished and then wrote about, in a river runs through it, just outside of town. But he was busy with his wife and child, work and life. So early on I fished alone, realizing later that although I learned how to fish more slowly because alone, its merits developed more quickly and perhaps more deeply. It's easy to lose oneself while fly fishing, to settle into sunspots on the rattlesnake or cool dark pools on the Bigfoot, watching the lazy fluorescent line float downriver while a soft breeze gently blows and bends the long green grass. It's easy to lose oneself while watching a steady rock fold millions and millions of gallons of water around a turn, creating ebb and flow, swirl and calm, patience, beauty. It's even easy to lose oneself in a little river or creek just outside your door if it runs through your life if you let it run through your life. Yes, when my wife Shan said she wanted to move to the Mackenzie Valley, famous for its mountains and trees and fly fishing, I simply said, sounds good to me. Many days she would spare me to the creek, at least until dark, so I could find a little solace in the subtle light and soft ripple of the evening, just before eating and falling into bed, exhausted from loving other people's children. I haven't fly fished since we left Oregon 20 years ago. I will always remember Horse Creek, one of the many creeks that feed into the Mackenzie River, which then feeds into the Willamette and ultimately 
into the Pacific Ocean and beyond. I clearly remember walking the deer paths behind our rented house, weaving around the few buildings between us and the creek, my felt-bottom boots quieting my steps as my pole trailed behind, guarding against worries and work, ensuring they didn't follow me. The never-ending green of the Mackenzie Valley always soothed my mind, softened my worries enough to allow me to relax, to breathe, a solitary breath, and then another, and then forget the stress of guiding other people's children toward their uncertain futures. On this momentous evening, I arrived at my usual starting point, downstream from the better spots, the better holes of deeper, calmer water, where whirlwinds of foam and fish food gathered in the swirling current, along overgrown banks and under clinging tree roots. In the open area, the water rippled loudly along the contours of rocks and pebbles, smoothed by centuries of flow. The sun was just high enough to light the water, but from a low-down, lazy angle, softening the light reflecting off the water. I sat quietly on a log, next to some high grass that grew from one of the tiny islands along the edges of the wider parts of the creek. No thoughts, no intentions. Just water. Then I stood up, calmly tied on my fly, and stared peacefully at the multifaceted shimmers glistening in the light of creeping dusk. And for some reason, I started wondering about Forrest and comparing him to my son. Seth was less than a year old, and Emma was just a dream. But already I wanted all the world's chances for my children. Already I knew what I would do for my son, for his future. Whatever it takes, right? But what about Forrest? I literally remember thinking, what am I willing to do for him? As I stood shin-deep in perfection, in a perfect creek on a perfect evening, with a perfect life back home, I felt for the first time that I can remember the terrible pain of my profession. As the eternal flow of mountain water and time pressed upon my legs, squeezing the air out of my neoprene pants that kept me warm, I suffered for Forrest and his resignation. His premature decision to fall back before even reaching, before choosing his own future. It wasn't that he wanted to cut down trees in the woods, a fine profession for his grandfather when done well. It was that he'd been persuaded to settle so early. He assumed there were no other options for him before deciding what he wanted. I stood still, quietly wondering, fishing rod balanced loosely in my hand, swaying slightly like one lone, tall blade of grass sideways and helpless. The autumnal evening insects hummed loudly, instinctively singing their song. The light slowly waned. I thought of walking back without even casting, a little too sad to fish. But instead, I did nothing. Just stood there like a small, insignificant tree, listening, wondering. I don't know how long. The water flowed kind of through me. But when I finally looked up, I wasn't alone. A large doe stood about 20 feet upstream, staring right through me. I assume now that she looked toward me when I turned my head, movement being more noticeable than form in the gloaming dusk. But at the time, it seemed like she'd been staring through me for years. Her ears sprang up, but not her tail. 
She faced me calmly, alertly, slightly askew, and still as the mountain. We didn't move for a long time. I noticed I'd stopped breathing, so I drew in a soft one. Her rough golden ear twitched. The setting sun illuminated her flank, a molten kind of brown, the color of deer seen on the edge of a field from the highway. But the effect is different when viewed from a few feet away. Her enormous brown eyes stared straight at me for a few more minutes, which seemed much longer. And then, like Forrest, I simply smiled. Life is not so mysterious sometimes, but that makes it all the more spectacular. Finally, she turned and walked around the little island of overgrown bushes and small trees that had hidden her as she approached. Her fawn, which I didn't see until the last moment, foraged just around the aisle, indifferent to me and my thoughts. She guided her child into the wood's edge as if I didn't exist, leaving me shin-deep in an entirely different perfection. I felt empty in a good way, so I walked slowly up the creek to a good spot with a bend in the bank where time had carved out safety and security, and I cast my fly upstream. I watched it settle, drift, and start to drag. Then I cast upstream again and again. I remember looking over my shoulder, hoping the doe and her child would still be there, watching me, or at least lingering along the bank in the evening, eating the tender shoots growing at the water's edge. No. Just insect song and twilight softly dissolving into night. My line had puddled around my legs, so I cast it again, letting out just enough line to set my fly softly on top of the water, tempting a trout to rise. You see, trout are not smart, but the bigger ones are picky. Habit brings them to the surface, to the right moment. So a good fly fisherman must create just the right moment so the fish doesn't have a reason not to rise and take the fly. On a good day, a good fisherman might create dozens of worthy moments and many more unworthy. The secret to being a great fisherman is creating more worthy moments than unworthy, so the fish doesn't need to say no. Just rise. So much of life is habit. When the right moment happened on that beautiful night, I set the hook and felt the glory of nature vibrating through my hands. When a trout takes a fly, you only see it for a split second, and then it's mostly felt. You see your line speeding in chaotic directions, but feel the incredible pull of a fish and river and time, and feel the pulling song of a taut, wet line through cold water. So it's not as much about what you see as what you feel. I realized that evening on Horse Creek that the closest we can get to perfection is union. To be, for a moment, connected to what is true, to what we love, to who we serve. In that dusky moment, I was joined to a trout thinking only of loose pebbles and gloaming light, eternal water flow, sticks and underwater tree trunks, the angle of my rod, and the fish's fight to survive. In that moment, I too was the creek and the fish and the doe for a few wonderful moments. It is a mistake to consider a trout separate from its environment. It is a mistake to separate the insect's song and the diving bats, the river otter, and the pebbles on the creek bed. It is a mistake to separate the doe and the trout from the waning light, the trees, the forest. It was a mistake 
to try to separate Forrest. I played the trout until it tired, reeled it in, and held it in my terrifyingly warm hands. It gasped for water while it found only air. Cold and shiny black eyes stared at me while I marveled at its colorful body. Rainbow trout are more color-rich than brown trout, but they are all flecked and mottled in beautiful hues. It reached about nine or ten inches, a strong, noble fish for a creek this size. I carefully removed the hook and held it into the current, making sure the oxygenated water flowed through its gills, reviving its will to live. When it flexed into the water, I loosened my grip, and this trout, like so many others I had hooked, held, and released, disappeared into the dark water. I knew life couldn't get any better for me, so I headed home. The bats feasted on the rising insects. The soft sounds of eternal water slowly faded. I only realized how dark it was after I left the creek bed, walking along the same deer pass that always led me home. And instantly, I wanted to hold my son. To raise him up and touch his soft and perfect cheek to mine. A perfect union. A perfect moment. A perfect end to the only day I knew. I hoped he wouldn't be asleep, but playing happily on the floor. I imagined his smile waiting for me as if all his joy could be mine, as if we too would be one because I wished it so, like the trout and the creek and the doe. My joy grew with every step. I had completely forgotten about Forrest. During the two years I taught in the McKenzie School District, before my wife told me she missed her family such that we decided to return to the Midwest, I worked regularly with Forrest. I taught him how to hold a football properly and correctly punctuate run-on sentences. I challenged him to do his homework during football and basketball season and tried to make his education fun and challenging. I fulfilled my job duties, even working extra time on planning, grading, and coaching. I was a good teacher, which Forrest would probably confirm to this day. But that is not the point. Forrest did not need to learn to hold a football or correctly punctuate his sentences as much as I needed to realize my place in his life and my obligation as a man, teacher, and mentor. It's so easy to distinguish between what's mine and what's theirs. My job versus their responsibility. My rules versus their needs. My son and daughter versus their sons and daughters. It's so easy to lose sight of what's important, to lose the forest and the trees. I had it wrong all along. Forrest's future was not my responsibility. Only his present. I should have seen him for what he was in that moment, a boy who needed compassion, a boy who might have needed to talk about his father. Forrest deserved a compassionate mentor who could care for him and about him as much as any other child. I was ignorant of the true merit of teaching. Loving all children is a painful gift worth a lifetime of fortune and growth. I did not realize until years later that the doe standing with me, knee-deep in perfection, was not inviting me to fish or imploring me to release Forrest to his future, but reminding me to embrace him in the moment, to accept him, to love him, to mentor him, that day. I did not realize until years later that just as there is no difference between the trout and the creek and the doe, just as there is no difference between the soft evening and the gloaming light, there is really no difference between my son and their sons, between Seth and Forrest. I'm a teacher. All children are my children. 
Thanks again for joining us and believing that all children are our children and that all kids deserve our intelligent compassion. Please return next week when we discuss alternative education with Tony Devine, an extraordinary teacher from the Fox River Valley area who really knows how to love all children. He's done it for decades. And thank you for subscribing so we can share these stories and links to free resources, as well as other inspirational material to help you not just get through the week, but enjoy being a part of the noblest profession. If you haven't already, please join us on Facebook and let us know if you liked or disliked this episode. We never want to waste your valuable time. Finally, always remember, you must take care of yourself in order to take care of others. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.